What a joyous blessing it is this Lord's Day morning to have assembled in the way that we have for the purpose at which we've done it. Isn't it a delightful blessing to give thought to the Word of God and the matchless blessings which it describes? Many of those of which we've just sang just a few moments ago. That beautiful mansion in those realms beyond this one. The understanding that connects to the features of making preparation for that abode. Isn't it a blessing that you and I can come together and pour out to God the thanksgiving in our heart, recognizing that He has made all those wonderful things possible. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, in the words of James chapter 1, verse 17. As you can see on the wall before you, the wall behind me, we're going to reflect upon a flood. The flood, if I may refer to it that way. You and I remember how that, that prescription is provided to us in Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8. But not only shall we revisit the particulars of that flood, but the implications. What does it mean for you and for me today? This opening slide is merely an introduction in which could I remind you that there, over the course of the ages, have been many momentous events in the history of the world. I selected a few. Perhaps the list is embarrassingly small. But you know that when Alexander the Great died, what a fundamental change took place in light of the movement of the ancient world. And we also understand it's a pretty big deal when Columbus sailed across the Atlantic and discovered the Americas. It was also a pretty big deal when the human family finally learned in the 1930s and 40s how to construct bombs of the nuclear character. And of course, the greatest event of all, the spring of A.D. 30, when Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to a cross. And several weeks later, he, wrote, he certainly ascended back to the Father. But all of that reminds us of some pretty big events. Could I add to that the flood of Noah's day? A pretty big event in the history of the planet. So much so that I will go ahead and say that no single event has shaped the surface of the planet any more notably and any more thoroughly than that flood. Today, you and I still, by way of geology and by way of other scientific endeavors, have been able to appreciate that which took place then. Now today, our lesson's not about geology. That's for a different place and time than this. But could we at least reflect upon the flood? And why don't we start that consideration by simply revisiting the scene of Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8. And as we do that, we'll not read the thoroughness of the three chapters, but we can at the very least be reminded of what's described there and use that to motivate God's response to it. God had, of course, created Adam, and He'd created Eve, and to them were given the interesting statement, replenish and fill the earth. And in those words of Genesis 1.28, certainly they began to do that. And under the reality of those long lifespans that took place back then, the population of the planet grew rather quickly. Lots and lots of people came to inhabit this beautiful planet. But surely along the way we read about the scene of Genesis chapter 3 and the decision that Adam and that Eve made in order to disobey the commandments of the Lord and suddenly we notice that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And in so doing, they lost access to the tree of life, and they died. 
And that has been the lot for the human family ever since. You and I realize that our journey upon this planet will be a rather limited one. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. As you and I give thought to that movement in the book of Genesis, we quickly then arrive at Genesis chapter 6, in which we notice that the human family had grown to a fairly sizable number, but we're quickly told that they thought about things that were bad. The thoughts of men's heart were only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 5. They began to move in a direction that was not pleasing to God, and they lived in a way that was not beneficial for them. For you see, you and I know that serving God is not only preparing for eternity, it's the best life here. If you and I choose to disobey Him and live opposed to Him, it not only will not bode well for the day of eternity, but you know it's not good for our life here. The Bible so often reminds us that service to the Lord leads to happiness. Proverbs 128 verses 1 and 2. Service to the Lord provides for the state of mentality of peacefulness. John 16 verse 33 just to name two blessed benefits of continual and faithful service to the Lord. It might well be, though, in that connection, as we think back to this one, they chose to do what was evil, and they thought about it, dwelling upon it, pursuing it. God made a determination. And you and I read about that in Genesis chapter 6. It is in that regard I would point out the following things near the bottom of that slide. God determined to bring a flood of waters to destroy, to cleanse, to purify the surface of this planet. Men, you see, in their rebellion to God, they tarnished it. They had marred it. They would contaminated it. And that's what sin always does. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1 reminds us of the contaminating influence of sin. But at least as you and I revisit this text before us, there's a bright spot. I said that the human family had chosen to be rebellious, but think about the bright spot of Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 8, we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here we find a man that was godly, a man that had a pristine character such that God prized highly his commitment, his loyalty, and his allegiance to the things of truth. God informed this man, I'm going to bring a flood of waters. And he gave him some orders. Orders that involved the construction of an ark. And on this next slide, you begin to think more about the character of that conversation. Noah and his sons and their families, given the order, the instruction to construct an ark, This was no fishing boat, you see. It wasn't some small kind of ocean-going vessel. In the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, we're told somewhat about its dimensions, and you perhaps remember them with me quite well. 300 cubits in length. That's 450 feet in our modern vernacular. 450 feet. As you and I will appreciate, roughly dividing that by three will convert it to yards. We're talking 150 yards. This was one and a half football fields in length. And when Noah constructed it, you and I remember, of course, 
that he had not the power tools and the other facilities available to us today. But not only its length, its width is also prescribed. God directed that this vessel was to have a width of some 50 cubits. That, of course, takes us to about 75 feet, which again divided by three is 25 yards. That's how wide it was. In terms of its height, the vertical character of this structure, 30 cubits, that's 45 feet. Again, divided by three, we're talking 15 yards in height. This was no small vessel. This was a vessel that the God of heaven had dictated. And verse 22 of Genesis 6 says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. I wonder how often in that process of constructing the vessel was there a degree of frustration. I wonder how often was there a degree of exasperation. Any of us who have ever tried to construct things, building things, you know that those kind of moments can arrive. When pieces don't fit the way you hope, when particular matters do not dovetail the way that would be the finest, Verses 3 and 4 seemingly indicate that 120 years was allotted to Noah to build this vessel. 120 years. Sometimes when you and I work on a project a couple of weeks and when it's not done, we get tired of it. How well would you and I have done working on a project that long? And yet Noah did it. Aren't you impressed with him? Aren't you thankful for him? Isn't it such that the character of his choices still stands as an amazing reflection of a man devoted to the things of God. You'll notice on that slide that's before us, the intent by God, of course, was that this vessel would allow the preservation of life, not just human life, but animal life. For all the land-dwelling creatures, they too needed to be protected from the flood waters. And so it was that God gave commandment that two of every unclean beast and seven of every clean was to be taken aboard that ark. And they were to survive there because all of the ample supplies, such as the food and provender, also was boarded as well. As you close that particular slide, you then arrive at this. You and I recall that by the time we arrive at chapter 7, the moment for the flood had arrived. And so Noah went into the ark with all the animals and his family, and God shut the door. Haven't you been impressed that Noah didn't shut it? The door, you see as all of that had taken place, we're reminded that 40 days and 40 nights, there came to be a rather great inundation of the planet. When not only did water arrive from above, but also the text says the fountains of the great deep were broken up and water from beneath gushed to the surface of the planet. In the statement of that, Genesis 7, verses 12 and following. We learn the water ultimately arose to cover the highest mountain on earth. And it covered it sufficiently so that even the depth that the ark floated in the water, it would still clear every impediment, every mountain, everything that was there. There was no danger to the ark in that regard. Could I close that slide by saying that we've arrived at a place where many are those who deny the occurrence of the flood. They say that's a nice story, but that's all it is. No better than Aesop's fables. No better than some fictional enterprise of mankind. 
Could I use this as an opportunity to remind us the record of the flood is real. It happened. There was a time and a moment and a set of days wherein the very description of which we read took place. And some of what which we'll discuss later in the lesson will bring us back to that point time and again. On this next slide, could we begin to make a few observations and tie some of these matters together? What lessons might you and I learn about the characteristics of the flood that we can apply today to encourage us in our walk with the Lord and to remind us about the matter of this God that we serve? First, what about this flood? Might we remember that the reasoning for it, that which prompted it, was that state of affairs described in the early verses of Genesis 6. Sin had contaminated not only this world, but the human family was pursuing it with both hands earnestly. Now that kind of description will always garner the attention of the God of heaven because God hates sin, Psalm 5 verse 4 tells us. He hates it. Sin, you see, is so destructive and it's so harmful. In response to the human family's choices in light of sin, it was God's determination to bring a flood of waters. I've asked you to notice verses 6 and verses 11 and following, in which we find descriptions along that very line, inasmuch as that flood was a sentence of judgment on the part of God in His wrath toward the human family. Let's make a parallel if we might. You know the flood took place, but we all know that that did not eliminate sin from the surface of earth because sin is a choice. Nobody is made to sin, but we can choose to do it. We can choose to pursue our lusts and the matters which God has forbidden, and in so doing, we can choose to do that which is sinful. And yet, just as it was in the days of Noah... God judged the world in that way due to sin. He's going to judge it again, but not by water. There's coming a day of judgment when each one of us will give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. And in fact, Paul would say it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The all-seeing eye of God is quite well aware of what you and I are doing, have done, and shall do. And there is a rather complete record of all of it in the mind of God. How's it going to be when you and I give an answer for that? Will the tally be positive? Will it be a meritorious thing in which the God of heaven can look upon us and say, Well done! Or will it be in that other category, Depart from me you workers of iniquity. Oh, how we should give all that is the earnestness of our life to ensure that we are on that side in which that sin is not going to be tallied against us because it will have been forgiven. Look at lesson number two. Not only do we learn about God's interest in and punishment of sin, but what about the warning that God gave? You may initially ask, what warning did God give them? May we never forget 2 Peter 2, verse 5, as well as 1 Peter 1, sorry, 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and following. You see, this single individual you and I know as Noah, the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. 
that indicates rather powerfully and rather directly that during the course of those years building up to the flood, he encouraged people to change, encouraging them to repent and do differently, setting before them the reality of a coming flood, and yet you and I know how many of them responded. We know how many of them turned their life around and pursued what God had revealed in terms of warning. I would suggest to you that the occurrence of the flood was actually a fairly well-known thing in terms of a coming event in that ancient day. I say that among other reasons because of what the word Methuselah means. Now you and I know about Methuselah. He's a good trivia question. Who's the oldest man we have any record of in the Bible? Methuselah, 969 years. But there's a lot more about Methuselah. Think about what his name. In the ancient Hebrew, that word Methuselah had to do with a coming flood. Methuselah's daddy named him after a name with regard to the fact there was a coming flood and Methuselah died the year the flood happened. Isn't that interesting? He died the very year the flood happened. I would say again, they knew about a coming flood. It had been revealed by God to this lineage of people who should have known better. And so when we come to Noah, aren't we impressed with the fact Noah knew and God gave him the details of exactly the features to prepare for it. It might also be fair to notice. Let's make another comparison. God gave warnings to those people with regard to the coming flood. Isn't it true that God gives us warning about the coming day of judgment and what we need to do to be ready? No one will be able to say at the day of judgment, God, I didn't know. I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how to get my sin forgiven. Nobody can say that with a straight face. For God forevermore sent His Son and put in place the logistics of the church and the plan of salvation. And in Romans 1 verse 20 we read this, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. There will be no excuses. God has given us warning as well. And so aren't we encouraged to serve the Lord with faithfulness and to obey Him completely, to become a Christian and give your life to Him? And if we don't do that, it isn't God's fault. It isn't the Lord's fault. It isn't the Holy Spirit's fault. It's my fault. Nobody else. It thus a thing to consider that those people of that day, they too had warning, but they had chosen to ignore them. They had chosen to turn their back upon them. What about lesson three? What about this flood? I know that there are some who will assert that that flood was a rather local phenomenon. It was a Middle Eastern kind of thing in which you notice it had happened there but nowhere else. That isn't so. The text very clearly says that every mountain on earth, that's not just the Middle East, every mountain on earth was such that it was covered with water. And isn't it true? You and I know water will flow downhill by the force due to gravity. It's not going to pile up in one place and none be found anywhere else. This flood was a universal thing all over the planet. In fact, isn't it interesting that when Noah was told to take those animals aboard the ark, he wasn't just told to take Middle Eastern animals. There were some kangaroos aboard that ark. But 
they live in Australia. There were Chinese pandas on there, apparently. There were dinosaurs on there. Every creature was there. Every kind that God had identified. And the text says God brought the animals to Noah. Noah didn't have to go get them. God brought them to him and he took them onto the ark. And there, of course, they were preserved along with Noah. Isn't it interesting, as you notice on that slide, let's make another comparison. What about the final judgment? It too will be universal. No one will escape the judgment. No one will be exempt. No one can claim, I'm not susceptible to it. How often do we read in texts such as Matthew 25, verses 32 and following, how that all nations shall be gathered before Him. All nations. In Romans 14, 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. May I then point out that we can't just simply say that the judgment's for them, or it's for him or her, it's for me too. Yea, it'll be all of us. So far, the parallels to the flood of Noah's day seem rather impressive, don't they? The same things that could be said of the flood in parallel appear to be true of the day of judgment. That principle extends also to number four. The flood surprised most people, at least in this regard. They apparently had not taken seriously what Noah said. Maybe they thought he was kidding. Maybe they thought in some way he was just overly zealous about something that wasn't really going to happen. Whatever may have been the case, they found out differently when the floodwaters arrived. I think it's probably true today that many people are going to be surprised. Maybe they've lived their life under the impression, I've been fine so far, and my daddy was fine, my grandpa was fine, and all as far back as I've ever known, everyone's been fine. I believe I'll be fine too. Granddad never went to church services. He was a fine man. Grandma's the sweetest woman ever knew, somebody might say, and she never attended any church services. Others might say, well, my family went every now and then when they felt like it. We were good, upstanding people. May I ask, I wonder what the Bible has to say about this. I'm sure there were a lot of folks in Noah's day who otherwise were probably good employees. They might have been great farmers. They worked in various attributes of life, but they weren't aboard the ark. And so they died. They were swept up in the flood waters of the moment. Perhaps they found the day of the arrival of the flood waters a very strange and amazing thing. On that slide, I invite you to note today that the majority are not going to be saved. I don't say that in any way other than that's what the Lord said. When Jesus was asked in Luke 13, 24, are there few that be saved? Jesus said yes. That's what He said. I realized quite well that just a few months ago we crossed 8 billion people on the planet. 8 billion the majority are not saved. We hope that they will come to the truth and appreciate the features and the attributes of it and that they will obey it. But oh, how sweet is the thought that we have been particularly blessed in this part of the world 
religious freedom, the opportunity to have as many Bibles as you want, to read it with earnestness and to give attention to it. There are other people in the world who find it much more challenging to obey the Bible because they may not have that many Bibles for one thing. And those that may well have them may have a government that persecutes openly those that obey one of them. But here we have such opportunity and such freedom to make that choice. As you close that fourth point at the bottom of that slide, Jesus likened this very matter that we're discussing now to a point of discussion concerning this very thing. You see, the day of judgment's coming. I surely don't have reason to be surprised. I know it's coming, and so too do you. All of that leads us to note somewhat about this next slide, part number five. There was a place of safety. There was a place of safety. You can only imagine as those dimensions of that ark I listed a moment ago, many folks in that particular area would have seen it arise as Noah built upon it day after day and week after week and month after month. And I suppose some of them may have laughed at what he was doing. I suppose many didn't take it as seriously, nearly as seriously as they should have. But of course all of that leads us to that fifth point. The ark was the only way of safety. You could climb as many trees as you wanted. You could have climbed the highest hill in the area. You could have run as fast as you could and you wouldn't have gotten to safety. There was no other way. Could I point out the uniqueness of that thought? One and only one. What about today? There is but one and only one way of safety to the day of judgment. It is the ark of safety, as we often call it in prayer, the church of our Lord. They are the ones that are the saved, Ephesians 5.23. They are the ones who, in fact, have been such that their names in the book of life have placed them in the position of safety. We like being safe. We all do. We never want to purposefully put ourselves or others in a position of danger or harm. And yet... From the standpoint of eternity, there is but one place. Are you a faithful member of the church? If you're not, you're not in a safe place. I don't care what the world may have led you to believe. I don't care what someone else may have said. And the Lord doesn't particularly care about it either. He has taught us that there is a place of safety. It's a place we must be. Look at number six too late it came to the point where it was too late I know we all know that on that day the flood waters came anybody that had previously doubted or anybody that previously had been uncommitted their mind was changed then as the flood waters were rising all around them it was now evident that Noah had been right and his preparation and his preaching had been thorough and true but you know what? The door had been shut to the ark by then. It was too late. It was too late. I suppose some of the saddest words in all the English language, too late. Opportunities that once were available are no more. Privileges that once were possible are no more. 
it's too late. In Genesis 7, 21, you see, after the matters of the flood waters had begun to arrive, the door was shut by then. The opportunities available might lead to portraits and pictures that look like this. Now, this is some artist's rendition of this scene of events. But you can see the vessel we call the ark in the left part of the screen. And the door that's there has been shut. You also notice, if you're able to see it with clarity enough, there are people floating in that water. They hadn't died yet. The flood waters had just barely started to arise, maybe, and you can imagine them pounding on the side of the ark. I'm ready to come in now. But it's too late. The opportunities you've had for days gone by are no more. It's hard for me to imagine arriving at a few moments past the day of judgment, having been consigned to hell, knowing all the while now I had my chance. I had dozens of chances. I heard gospel sermons and preaching. I had family members praying for me. I had people who urged me, and I never did a thing about it. And now it's too late. All of eternity, it's too late. I can't change a thing about where I am. I can't change a thing about what I'm experiencing. It's too late. And to live with that thought, on and on, never a ceasing of it. We will have our thinking in the, in the life beyond this one. I'll know if I messed up, and I'll remember the opportunities, and I'll know what chances I had. Too late. This next picture is an even more dramatic one in some ways. You can see people clinging to logs. You can see them clinging to various floating objects. But you know what? All that came to an end at some point. And everybody died except those aboard the ark. The day of judgment is going to be a complete matter. There will be but two categories. Those who, by way of availing themselves of the blood of the Master, are prepared for eternity, and oh, how sweet it'll be. But the other category, those unready, those that never obeyed the gospel, or those who had but then chose to become unfaithful to it, either way, you notice that they find themselves in a position where it's now too late. You know every one of them will want to think that they could have changed it. And they'll plead for what no longer is possible. Isn't it true? The Word of God shares with us some features about the desperateness of it. In Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17, we're told, They'll cry for the rocks to fall on them, to hide me from the Lamb and His wrath. But it'll be too late. Is it any wonder that the flood is provided to us as an event that should rest in our heart? urging us to be, to be wiser than those who didn't make preparation then. Let me close the lesson with two brief observations. Number seven, there was a great newness after that flood. Remember, we commented earlier that all of those rebels to the Lord no longer were here now. And so what happened after Noah and his family stepped off that ark? They stepped off to an earth that had been washed from all the sin that had been here. And you could start all over. 
Now, you and I know in time it came to be pretty wicked again. We understand that. But oh, what that water accomplished. Could I point out to you what this water accomplishes? 1 Peter 3.21 states it again like this, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a bath. It's not a bathtub. But it can cleanse spiritually. And that text reminds us it washes sins away and we rise a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. The flood waters, Noah and his family appreciated something new. A way to start again. You see, that can happen to you and me today. And I know many in this assembly have appreciated that. And you remember the moment of your submission and baptism. But it may well be in that light. As you close that particular point, what an encouragement. Whenever you or I reach a point in life that we need to start over. A turning to the Lord is what's going to be the order of the moment every time. It's God's way that will allow a starting afresh. For only He can forgive all those sins of the past. Only He can, in fact, cleanse the conscience in the words of Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Only He can thus set in course and order in light of the newness described in the Word of God. The floods, my friend, was real. I know there are men today on earth who have written volumes of books about how the flood never happened, but they're mistaken about that. The Grand Canyon in our very country is an artifact of the flood. It reminds us of what took place in the momentous force involved at that time. But having said that, it's also true the Day of Judgment is going to be real an absolute occurrence. It's not a figment of some fundamentalist religious imagination. It's going to happen. And Jesus warned us about it. The inspired writers of the New Testament tell us about it. And it's something we need to prepare for. And we do that today by way of making comparisons in light of this flood. Again, Peter pointed out like this, the like figure. That like figure, based on the previous verse, is the flood. Peter in essence said in the same way they were saved by the flood and others were perished, so too in light of that baptism saves us. If you've never been baptized, why do you delay? Jesus himself died on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. He wants you to be in heaven with him. And he established the church for you. And today we'd be delighted and honored to encourage you in that way. Surely, as I say that and extend the invitation at this time, may I say too that if you have strayed from faithfulness and you now find yourself rather far distant from the place you once had known, it's not that God moved. It's not that the Lord changed His mind. It's that you did. But He beckons for you. He begs you to come back. For there's only one place you need to be, and it's faithfully at His side. Everywhere else, you're outside that ark of safety. Everywhere else, you're in a position of doom and destruction. We would be more than delighted to shed tears of joy as you return to the Lord. 
It has to be a decision that you make to repent of your sins and make confession of them. And we would be honored to encourage you. If today anyone is in need of responding to the invitation in these ways, we want to make this opportunity available and to extend to you, much like now, the thought of that very day of Noah when he preached with such earnestness, urging them to make the right decisions in their life. Would you do that too and do it at once while we stand and while we sing?